Good morning. Welcome to this RCP podcast, which is about medical legal issues in healthcare. My name's Alistair Thompson. I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, but I'm a consultant pediatrician in Cheshire. I'm also an associate postgraduate dean for Health Education England Northwest, and I've got a long-standing role and interest in medical education. In addition to that, I do some expert medical legal work in general pediatric litigation and claims. And I'm talking today to Jenny Teplow. Jenny, would you like to speak about yourself? Yes, thanks, Alistair. Um, so, as Alistair said, I'm Jenny Tetlow, and I'm a solicitor at a firm called Higgs LLP, which is in Bridie Hill, and I represent claimants in clinical negligence claims. And, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be here speaking with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us. And, and the purpose of this is to explore a little bit about medical legal matters, both from claimant's point of view and perhaps from defendant's point of view as well, because at some stage it's likely that doctors are going to come across litigation. Of course, uh, they may get involved in complaints, they may get involved in root cause analyses and other uh, activities um, long before litigation appears, but uh, some doctors are likely to receive claims for litigation, and we're going to talk through some of the aspects of these. So, and perhaps, Jenny, would you like to say why patients bring claims? Yes, I think probably the first thing to say is that, in my opinion, or in my experience, a legal claim for compensation isn't necessarily the first thing that somebody has, um, you know, somebody wants to do when they have got concerns about treatment. And I think it's probably quite important to try and get into the mindset of somebody who does have concerns about treatment. Um, you know, it may be their own treatment or it may be treatment of a loved one. And I think something that we come across frequently is people not understanding why things have gone wrong. And primarily, they want to know why things have happened. And sometimes they're seeking an apology. And I think a lot of the time people come to us to start discussing the possibility of bringing a claim once the, the dust has settled, as it were. So, yeah, I think it's not necessarily the first thing that's on people's minds, but sometimes, obviously, it does progress into that. So that's quite interesting that uh, they may have gone through other processes first. Mm. What, what happens if they come to you before they've gone through those other processes? What's your response to that? Yeah, that's interesting. I think it, it, it depends on the circumstances of the, you know, of what's happened. Obviously, everything's very different. No two cases are the same. I think from, from our perspective, it's something that we commonly encourage people to do and um, to take part in the complaints process because it makes it a lot easier for us, to be honest. Um, once you have got something that's in writing, it's coherent, you can follow it and you can better understand what has gone on. I think it's often a very, emotional process obviously and sometimes when people you know when something has just happened to somebody and they get on the phone to you and they start telling you what's happened it's really hard to, to try and work out whether actually you know a claim would be possible whether there are grounds to bring a claim but I have to say I think in my opinion it, it's a dissatisfaction generally with the complaints process and how that's dealt with by the hospitals that prompts people to take legal action as I said, often very, you know, very often people want an apology. They want those answers and they're often, you know, they, they'll go through the complaints process and they won't get either of those things. And that's when they tend to come to us. Um, but I think something I would like to say, it's important to bear in mind, at least from 
from our perspective, um, from a legal standpoint, the aim of bringing a claim isn't to punish a particular doctor, to punish somebody who's perhaps made a mistake. We're all humans, we're all, we all make mistakes. Um, the purpose of, of litigation is to put that person who's been harmed back into the position they would have been in had the care been, you know, reasonable. I often find myself saying to people that I do talk to, you know, just because you're bringing a claim, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have the answers and it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get an apology. So I think, it, it, you know, complaints process and litigation process, they don't necessarily always work together. The aims are different. So I think it's important to explore it if, if that's something they want to explore. But often it's, uh, you know, it's not the end of the road, as it were. That's very interesting, and I think it does shed a bit of a light on the complaints process and how well it works or doesn't work. Are, are there aspects of the complaint process that patients are particularly unhappy with? Just to explore this a little bit mm. further, you say they may not get the answers that they want. Is it also that there are delays in the complaint process or that they don't meet the conditions involved or that uh, other aspects dissatisfaction yeah absolutely i think it's difficult as well obviously with everything that's gone on the past few years naturally that has led to further delay um but even before covid many many people would say you know i did make a complaint many months ago i've had the odd letter here and there from perhaps the you know the legal services team at the trust saying all bear with us you know we're not able to respond to your complaint at this time and i think Time drags on, and obviously something we all have to appreciate is that there is a three-year time limit to bring a claim. So the three-year limitation period is obviously important. If we miss that, we can't bring a claim. So I think it, that's something that weighs on people's mind as well. And in terms of meetings, I mean, I often say to people, it's a great thing to do if you feel able to do that, to go into hospital and have a meeting with somebody. But I do sometimes hear that people are told they're going to be talking with a particular person. You know, it might be that it's a consultant who's been heavily involved in the care of the person that they're talking about. And then they turn up on the day and it's somebody completely different. And I think that upsets people. You know, they, they feel as though perhaps their complaints aren't being taken seriously. So I think that's an issue as well. That's an interesting point because the complaints often uh, do come to the consultant who's the named consultant in charge of the patient's care. But because of team working, very often patients will have seen other doctors, junior doctors, trainees, maybe other consultants, and may not even have met the consultant who's dealing with the complaint or more than one consultant who may be dealing with the complaint when they come to speak about it. Uh, of course, consultants uh, are the ones who receive complaints and deal with them. They don't come to trainees, although trainees provide much of the care. But one of the things that I was quick to learn when I became a consultant a number of years ago from my senior colleague then, anticipation of a complaint can help to improve communication and patient satisfaction, or in the case in paediatrics, parent satisfaction. And he would often make it his business to identify where patients, parents might be unhappy and arrange very quickly to meet them mm. and talk to them about what had happened. And that was outside the complaints process that we now have, which I sometimes feel can be quite 
and long drawn out and ponderous and not address things in the time scale that I would like. If I were a complainant, I would like somebody to be on it rather more quickly, like my senior colleague was all those years ago. I think that's that's a really good way to approach these things, actually. And I think a lot of people would appreciate, you know, somebody reaching out and saying, look, we acknowledge something has gone wrong here. We want to meet with you and explain why. And I actually think that would probably put a stop to a considerable number of claims. I think that, as you've said, really, that process at the moment is reactive rather than proactive. And I appreciate that, you know, resources and, and time constraints and everything else, and all of these issues we know about are very important. And it means that that probably doesn't happen as often as people would like. But if it could happen, I think that would make a huge difference. It's much, much more time consuming dealing with litigation than it is <laughs> dealing with a complaint. True. However long drawn out a complaint process may be. Yeah. So just going on to claims, what are some of the most common claims in adult medicine? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think that the first thing to say is that the claims we come across anyway are so different. You know, no two claims are really the same. It's something that I've actually spoken with my colleagues about because I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to, to see within our own team at Higgs whether there are certain patterns in the claims that come to us. But what we've all agreed and concluded really is that actually it's more to do with issues in the provision of services as opposed to specific medical conditions that tend to lead to claims. So, for example, I think often if a patient is transferred from perhaps one team to another or even from one hospital to another, you know, issues in communication or lack of communication between staff departments, hospitals is often a really big issue. And that's not surprising, really. I think things like, you know, not knowing or, or agreeing a plan for whose responsibility it is to do something, either to chase at results or to order investigations, things like that, really, I think, where the claims tend to arise. In terms of nursing, I think avoidable pressure sores are often a, a big one because, you know, with reasonable care, they just should not happen. So we do come across that. But um, things like emergency surgery, radiology, I think there's, there's a lot of scope for error because, you know, you might not have the radiology request form that's been completed properly, um, obviously not interpreting it properly and then not acting on the results properly. Um, I think that's that's definitely an area where errors errors can occur quite frequently. Um, but I think to the extent that it's reassuring, what I would say is that mistakes leading to claims generally arise from a failure in the system as opposed to, you know, a, a mistake of one individual. Yes, and I think that that's uh, a theme that runs through complaints, root cause analyses and uh, all the ways that we look at uh, adverse outcomes in medicine it's not one thing very often it's a, a series of holes in the swiss cheese uh, <laughs> as reasons model had it uh, yeah. and they they conspire together and very often the, the, you get something stopped by one or other process uh, in medicine but if all the holes line up that can be a real problem and and you talk also about communication, so written communication, verbal communication, and of course with the growth of the number of people in the teams and team working in all its aspects, communications become 
really paramount and we spent a lot of time improving that in medicine to the benefit of the patient but it still doesn't always work. No. Alistair, you're obviously I know you're a medical legal expert and your specialism is paediatric uh, cases. Have you come across many common problems in paediatric cases as a medical legal expert? So I, I first started doing some medical legal work because I was involved in research in meningococcal disease and meningitis and I've continued in that area and sepsis as well as my main area of practice but often looking at uh, cases that arise in district general hospital contexts. In paediatrics as a whole there's quite a bit of work that uh, comes about through perinatal hypoxia some of that when babies who have uh, been delivered are, are found unexpectedly to have problems at birth. I don't do that work, but paediatricians are increasingly getting instructed as an added instruction when there are obstetric problems that are brought to litigation. Paediatricians uh, then look at what has happened to the baby immediately after birth and whether everything has worked as it should do. And child protection is another area. Uh, I don't get involved in that. There are other experts who do child protection work. Of course, that's a very tricky and difficult area. I think, uh, fourthly, delayed diagnosis of uncommon diseases or, or rare diseases are uh, areas that people are complaining about or litigating about. But the very nature of them being uncommon or rare diseases uh, mm-hmm. It's often very difficult to diagnose them without involvement of tertiary or even quaternary teams in the management of the case. So those are the areas. But as I say, mostly I'm involved in sepsis, meningococcal disease and, and meningitis myself, which is a, a high value claim in many cases. Yes. I and mean, I think that's just leading on from the high value comment. Um just reminding me that I went recently to a talk, uh, a presentation by Simon Hammond, who's currently the director of claims management at NHS Resolution. And as part of his presentation, he shared with us quite quite a number of statistics. But but one thing that was interesting was that of all claims reported to NHS Resolution in 2020 to 2021, only 11% of those claims related to obstetrics, 12% of those claims related to orthopaedic surgery, But when you consider the value of those claims that were reported, obstetrics claims accounted for 59% of the overall compensation paid out by NHS resolution, whereas orthopaedic surgery accounted for just 3%. So I think it's often, you know, although you may have um, perhaps claims that are more commonly brought, obviously if you've even got one obstetric claim, the value of that is, is huge. And I think when something goes wrong in that, field or that area it it obviously has a greater impact Um, just as you've said due to the high value nature of the claims you know the the care that's needed for that child the rest of their life is obviously it's going to to mount considerably so uh, I thought that was quite interesting. So what do you think that uh, experts need to consider when preparing a report Jenny and uh, what are the what are the legal tests that uh, have to be looked at? Yeah, it's a um, good question. I think um first thing to say is that they really are crucial to the process, the experts that we instruct. Um, they're often instructed quite early on in a case because the first thing we have to establish 
is that the relevant legal tests, which are breach of duty and causation, have been satisfied. So we'll initially, we'll normally take a witness statement from the client. We'll obviously have the records um, ready to go. And then one of the first things we'll do is instruct an expert to prepare a breach and causation report. Um, so in terms of in terms of the cases and, and the law that they need to apply, really, when they're identifying whether or not a doctor has breached their duty of care um, to a patient. So that the first case is the Bolam case, which obviously I'm sure you'll be familiar with, Alistair. Um, and often we refer to the Bolam test as a way of assessing whether or not the actions of a particular doctor have been negligent. So Bolam define the minimum standard of care that patients should expect to receive. And essentially, it says if a doctor acts in accordance with a responsible body of medical opinion, they will not be negligent. And that's the case, even if there's another group of medical practitioners who would take a contrary view. Um, but then the Bolam test was modified by the later judgment in another case, which was called Belivo. Um, and that basically put a caveat on the Bolam test. And it said that the action taken by the doctor must also have a sound and logical basis. So it's not just enough that a responsible body of medical opinion would have done the same thing. There must also be a logical base to, to that action. So taking the two together, you would say the doctor was not negligent if they acted in accordance with a responsible body of medical opinion, provided that the court finds that opinion is logical. Um, so I think that that's that's breach, really. Um, and that's quite important. I often find actually breach is the easier test of the two to satisfy where we often fall down um, is causation. So once that breach has been established, we have to then prove that the claimant has suffered harm or injury as a direct result of that breach of duty and that the harm or injury would not have occurred had the reasonable treatment been given. So. In other words, the breach has to lead to some form of adverse effect. Um, and, you know, whether something would, would have happened or not, uh, what we're asking our experts to comment on is, you know, would this have happened on a balance of probabilities? Um, so it, it's more likely than not. So possibility isn't enough. So if we ever see anything in a report that says, oh, it, it's possible that if this treatment had been provided, this wouldn't have occurred, we'll be going right back to the expert and saying that's not the right test to apply. It needs to be, um, you know, on a balance of probabilities, more likely than not. So, um, as I say, that that's often where cases fall down. And what I mean by fall down is we're then often not able to continue. So that's why we get the, the expert opinion early on. Um, if we can't make out those tests, we, we can't continue. So breach of duty is Bolam and Belifo and causation balance of probabilities is 51 percent isn't it it's uh, yeah. more likely than not and doctors tend to use the words possible and probable in in different ways to lawyers is what i mm. come to appreciate uh, would you agree with that yeah definitely and i think i'm sure you've been in conferences with with counsel with barristers and they're, they're really you know drilling down into those legal tests and i think it's often quite difficult for experts to you know, it's like putting on a different hat, I suppose, isn't it? Um, it's not necessarily how you would approach your clinical practice, but obviously there's certain legal tests that we have to satisfy in order to succeed um, and, you know, in order to, to win a, a claim, as it were. Um, 
So, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. It's actually one of the aspects of my job I like the most, getting involved with the experts, because I think you do learn so much from them. Um, but equally, I think it, it works both ways. You know, experts learn a lot from us as well. Um, I mean, would you find that, sorry, would you say that being an expert, you know, your involvement in medico legal matters has changed the way you approach your own clinical practice? Well, absolutely. Um, I think that the law looks at medicine in a very different way to doctors practicing medicine. And a lot of medicine inevitably is about working with uncertainty. And doctors who can't work with uncertainty often find it very difficult to function in uh, certain situations and certain specialties, uh, especially in dynamic situations where one's often working with uncertainty throughout the, the care of an acutely unwell patient. The law wants definite opinions and is adversarial and uh, wants it really yes or no, you know, 51% uh, <laughs> Way, what do you think makes a good medico legal expert? Oh, I mean, I think you need somebody who's firm in their opinion and who won't be swayed by the opinion of the opposing expert because obviously, well, particularly in the larger cases, you know, we can say, for example, it's a case involving a child who's developed cerebral palsy. We could have up to, you know, perhaps six or seven liability experts um, and obviously that's reflected on the defendant side so you would have a, a direct opponent um, and as cases progress particularly the higher value ones they are the ones that tend to go to court um, you know because there's so much at stake I suppose and if your expert then buckles as soon as they've you know seen the uh, seen the opinion of their opponent that's really not what you want so I think, yes, it, it's about being supportive and firm in your opinion, but also it's no good to us or to anyone, really, if you have an expert who is supportive and, you know, is giving support to the claim, but they're not actually really supportive of it. I think sometimes some experts fall into the trap of saying what they think we want them to say, um, but that's not going to be, not going to work, um, work well. So, um yeah, I think you want somebody who knows their stuff, obviously, uh, as a basic, and then somebody who is firm in their opinion, but not so firm that they can't appreciate other points of view. Because as a case moves along, you know, certain developments come to light, you may have to slightly modify your opinion as long as you're not completely crumbling. I think that's that's the key point, really. Yeah, so I think there's a very interesting point, and the way that doctors work, as I said earlier, increasingly in teams and collaborating with each other and maybe discussing cases in meetings, there's a lot of taking others' opinion into consideration and taking other views or maybe new facts on board and maybe modifying one's own opinion. And quite substantially, sometimes in clinical cases, uh, the medical legal expert has to do that and then put their opinion firmly down on paper and uh, commit themselves to it. I, I totally understand what you're saying about not wanting an expert to submit a report that is saying what you want them to say. <laughs> one, of, one of the tricks that I try to use for myself when I prepare a report is to uh, read it through 
uh, at the end and say, would I produce the same report if I were instructed by the other side, other mm. than the one who has instructed me uh, for this? Because uh, if it isn't, then I need to go back and modify it mm. and make sure that it is for the court, not yeah. for one side or the other, the claimant or defendant, whoever has instructed me. Mm. Well, Jenny, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been a, a pleasure to talk through a, a number of aspects of uh, medical legal uh, work and uh, implications with you. And I hope that uh, we may be able to meet again and uh, have a discussion in the future. Thank you. Thank you.